I trust you'll understand in a moment why I selected that psalm, ideally what should have, Jerusalem ought to have been, but we'll read what Jerusalem became. Please open your Bibles to 2 Kings 24. 2 Kings 24. I'm going to read the verses 8 to 17. As background introduction to the book of Ezekiel. Second Kings 24 and verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord as the Lord had said. Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officers and the mighty men and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, seven and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. The king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So far, the reading of God's holy word. The Bible teaches that the Lord is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and slow to anger. He's patient with his people. He does not deal with us in a rash, hasty, or capricious manner. In Luke 13, Jesus told a parable which illustrates God's long-suffering with sinners. It was about a fig tree growing in a vineyard. As we might expect, the owner of the vineyard kept coming to look for figs but he found none. Finally, he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I have come seeking fruit uh, on this tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But the keeper of the vineyard asked for more time, more time, at least another year to dig around the tree and fertilize it. If it bore fruit, everyone would be pleased. If not, he would cut it down. The parable reveals the patience of God with sinners. He delays his judgment and gives one opportunity after another to repent and turn to him. He digs around the tree and he fertilizes it so that it might bear fruit. 
But brothers and sisters, while the parable reveals the long-suffering of God with sinners, it also teaches us that there comes a time when his patience runs out. He's slow to anger, yet there comes a time when the axe falls and he says, cut it down. If God does not see the fruit of a changed life, if sinners continue to disregard his patient and gracious call of salvation, the Lord finally says, enough, cut it down. He righteously judges sin with a perfect justice. The tree that bears no fruit is not left to clutter the vineyard. It is removed from his sight. Congregation, our text shows us a period in Israel's history when God's long-suffering came to an end. Judah was a barren fig tree. The tree had been patiently cultivated, fertilized, and watered, but it bore no fruit. It was cultivated and fertilized through his servants, the prophets. They called the people to devote themselves to the Lord. They warned of his coming wrath and proclaimed the mercy of God to those who repent, but their words were largely unheeded. There were a few who responded in a godly manner. God always preserves his remnant. But most of the people, including the spiritual leaders, were corrupt and wanted nothing to do with God's faithful prophets. Because of their hard-heartedness, the Lord came upon them in judgment. Today, from 2 Kings 24, verses 8 to 16, we want to focus our attention on King Jehoiachin and the triumph of Babylon. From the verses before us, we see the defeat of Jerusalem in verses 8 through 12, the defilement of the temple in verse 13, and the deportation of Judah's choice men in verses 14 through 16. The defeat of Jerusalem. We saw last week that after the faithful reign of King Josiah, the leadership of Judah fell into the hands of his evil sons. Josiah was godly, but his sons fell into gross apostasy. After Josiah's death, the people of Judah made Jehoahaz, Josiah's fourth son, king in his father's place. But Jehoahaz only lasted for three months before he was carted off to Egypt, the house of bondage. 850 years earlier, God had delivered them from the house of slavery. But now, because of their sin, they once again came under the rule of Pharaoh. After the removal of Jehoahaz, Pharaoh appointed Jehoiakim, Josiah's second son, to rule over Judah. He remained on the throne for 11 years, during which time Babylon gained superiority over Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, allowed Jehoiakim to remain on the throne... But when he rebelled against him, after three years, Nebuchadnezzar sent raiding bands against Judah, and it was probably during one of the battles with these raiding bands that Jehoiakim lost his life. God punished him for his evil deeds. Because of his wickedness, killing God's prophets and burning God's word, Jeremiah prophesied that he would be buried with the burial of a donkey and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem as one rejected by God and man. After his death, Jehoiachin, his son, was crowned as king in Jerusalem. Jehoiachin is also called Coniah and Jeconiah in the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jehoiachin was only 18 years old when he took the throne. 
He inherited a kingdom that was on the verge of collapse, that had lost its former glory. One Puritan writer said, he came to the crown not to have the honor of wearing it, but the shame of losing it. He came in only to go out. He came in only to go out. Jehoiachin became the captain of a sinking ship, the master of a toppling house. His father and uncle before him had invited Yahweh's curse by their sin, and Jehoiachin inherited a nation that was under his wrath. The congregation, we are not to view Jehoiachin as a poor, innocent victim of his father's sins. Yes, he suffered the result of his father's sins. Yes, he was raised by a father who was spiritually rebellious. True enough. Jehoiachin was not raised in the fear of God or instructed according to his covenant. Here at Bethel, when we bring our children for baptism, we vow to instruct them in the doctrines of the Word of God and teach them the gospel of Christ. We promise to set before them that amazing grace by which lost, wretched sinners are saved. We vow to do all that is in our power to lead our children to Jesus. Jehoiachin's father had never made such a vow, for the message of salvation was not important to him. He did not instruct his sons in the doctrines of the word because he himself did not love those soul-saving, soul-sustaining doctrines. Therefore, Jehoiachin was at a great disadvantage. He did not have a father who lived a committed life for the glory of God. And yet, congregation, the Lord held him fully accountable for his actions. Verse 9 of our text says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. Jehoiachin willingly lived and ruled like his father. He walked in his footsteps in disobedience to the word of God. Just because Jehoiachin had an unbelieving father does not mean that he was totally ignorant of the word. No doubt he heard the prophecies and warnings of Jeremiah. But he chose to continue down the same path of unbelief upon which his father and uncle had walked. Therefore, Jehoiachin was only three months upon the throne when the servants of Nebuchadnezzar came pounding on the gates of Jerusalem. Jehoiachin's father had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, trying to break free from his yoke. And now, after just three months on the throne, Jehoiachin faced the consequences. An army stood at the gates of Jerusalem and Judah, an army which Judah could never, never withstand. The forces of Nebuchadnezzar had become so powerful that Jehoiachin knew he could not possibly resist. Now think about it for a moment. How terrifying it must have been to look over the walls of Jerusalem and see this massive army encamped on the other side. Imagine how Jehoiachin and the people of Jerusalem must have felt as they saw the swords of the enemy glimmering in the sunshine. They had no one to turn to for help, no one to come to their rescue. They were at the mercy of the Babylonians. What a sad picture this is, brothers and sisters. God's covenant people trembling before the enemy with no hope of deliverance. It did not have to be this way. 
It did not have to be this way. Remember when the nation of Israel entered the promised land? God enabled them to defeat nation after nation. He enabled them to conquer great cities like Jericho. The massive walls collapsed not by the strength of man, but by the power of God. God granted Joshua victory after victory after victory. They had nothing to fear as the Lord marched before them. God promised Israel that if they lived by His word, their enemies would fall by the sword before them. Leviticus 26, 8 says, Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Think of Gideon, where the words of Leviticus 26 were literally fulfilled. With a mere 300 men, he defeated the Midianites and Amalekites who were as numerous as locusts and whose camels were without number. Judges 7 says they were as the sand by the seashore in multitude. With 300, with 300, Gideon defeated an army who from a human point of view could not possibly be defeated. With God fighting the battle, Gideon accomplished the impossible. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Consider also the great victory of Hezekiah. During his reign, the king of Assyria came up against Jerusalem and besieged it. He mocked Hezekiah and the God of Israel. He sent a letter to Hezekiah calling him to surrender and submit to Assyria. Do you recall, children, do you recall what Hezekiah did? He went up to the house of the Lord, spread the letter before him, and prayed earnestly to God, seeking the honor of his name. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. O oh Lord, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Hezekiah poured out his soul before the Lord in his temple. The Lord heard his prayer and said, I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. The angel of the Lord went out against the Assyrians one night and killed in their camp 185,000. When the remainder of the men arose in the morning, they discovered the camp filled with the dead bodies. Sennacherib departed from Jerusalem, humiliated, defeated, and broken. Sennacherib had defeated numerous nations. But with the hand of the Lord against him, he could not set foot in Jerusalem. Hezekiah gained the victory. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Brothers and sisters, if only Jehoiachin cried out to God. Cried out to him with a genuine desire for his honor, as Hezekiah did. He would not have to fear the king of Babylon. The Babylonian armies were very impressive, but God had the power to crush them in a moment, to press their faces in the dust, to humiliate Nebuchadnezzar, just as he humiliated the Canaanites at the time of Joshua, the Midianites at the time of Gideon, and the Assyrians at the time of Hezekiah. 
If only Jehoiachin had gone up to the temple of God to pour out his soul before the Lord, things could have been so different for him and for Judah. He had the resources to defeat Babylon. God had promised it. But because of his unbelief, Jehoiachin saw no hope for the, for the defense of the city. And instead of calling on God, he surrendered to the enemy. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to verses 11 and 12. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. The young king surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, who had come up to Jerusalem in person to capture the city. He walked out of the gates to be taken a prisoner of war. Perhaps he hoped that by surrendering he might gain the king's favor and retain the throne as a vassal king. But Jehoiachin received no such favor. He was arrested as a rebel, made a prisoner, and led off to Babylon exactly as Jeremiah had prophesied. Turn with me, please, for a moment in your Bibles to Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry during the reign of Josiah. He was favorably received by Josiah, and they shared a common vision for the nation. Josiah and Jeremiah jointly labored for the reformation of Judah. But after Josiah's death, Jeremiah was rejected by Josiah's sons and his grandson, Jehoiachin. Therefore, Jeremiah predicted that Jehoiachin would be taken into captivity and he would never have his throne reestablished. Look to Jeremiah 24 and verse, uh, Jeremiah 22 and verse 24. 22, verse 24. As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you to the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you, into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. Look at verse 30. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. Jeremiah said, Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin will never return to his beloved land and never have a descendant to sit on the throne of David. Neither he nor his offspring shall prosper. Jehoiachin was a servant of sin, and therefore he became a servant of Nebuchadnezzar. He lost the throne, lost the crown, lost his kingdom. The defeat of Jerusalem was not merely due to Babylon's superior military strength. It was the Lord himself who defeated his own people. 800 years before the siege of Jerusalem, the Lord had said, If you do not serve me, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down. 
As King Jehoiachin was led off to Babylon, these words spoken 800 years earlier were fulfilled. Do you see, brothers and sisters, do you see the misery of sin and unbelief? It destroyed the life of Jehoiachin, it destroyed the lives of many in Judah, and it destroys the lives of men, women, and children, families, and churches today. If we do not live by the Word, if we do not take seriously the warnings of Scripture, if we do not love, worship, and serve the head of the church, if we have no time to spend with Him, then we will soon find ourselves slaves to sin. And if there is no repentance, God says, you will suffer eternally. The Lord is worthy of your worship and service. Do not neglect that great privilege. Well, then secondly, let's go back to 2 Kings. Secondly, our text not only reveals the defeat of Jerusalem, but also the defilement of the temple, the defilement of the temple. Go to 2 Kings 24 and verse 13. And Nebuchadnezzar carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord. What a sad time this was for the godly in Israel. It was one thing to have Jerusalem captured. That was bad enough. But the temple was also defiled. The sacred articles of the temple were touched with unclean hands and carried off to a pagan land. The golden vessels which Solomon had made for the worship of God were cut in pieces and brought to Babylon. Congregation, the temple in Jerusalem was the place that God had chosen to make his presence known. It was a special dwelling. It was there that the worshipers were to celebrate the feast. It was there that the throne of God stood in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. The temple was a reminder that the Lord was their God and they were his people. It was also a reminder that sins could be forgiven through the blood of the sacrifice. The temple its furnishings and all the ceremonies associated with it pointed to, children, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament temple was a symbol of the Messiah and his salvation. When you read the epistle to the Hebrews, this is made very clear. The earthly temple was a symbol of greater things to come. Through the sacrifices and offerings, the work of Christ was foreshadowed. The temple and the priestly service were like shadows of the Messiah cast backward in time in the Old Testament period. Through the temple, God was calling Israel to trust his provision for sin. They had to look beyond the temple to something far greater. Through the temple, God was saying to Israel, trust my provision. I will redeem you. I will deliver you from the curse of sin and set you free from the curse of the law. Hold fast to my promises. Believe what I declare to you through the symbolism of the temple and you will enjoy true and lasting communion with me. 
Therefore, congregation, with the invasion of Jerusalem and the defilement of the temple by pagans, God was sending a very strong message to his people. He was declaring to them that if they did not embrace the promises of the gospel, they would perish in their sin. If they did not cherish what the temple symbolized, they would be utterly rejected. God would no longer manifest his special presence in their midst. How the godly in Judah must have wept as they saw the Babylonians march into the courts of the temple and carry away the treasures. What sorrow filled their hearts when the articles of gold which Solomon had carefully crafted were cut in pieces. The defilement of the temple was a manifestation of God's anger. From all the nations of the earth, he had chosen Israel as a special people, entered into a covenant relationship with them, showered them with blessings, and given them his law, his prophets, and his promises. But Israel did not value their privileged position. They did not manifest the fruits of gratitude for the grace of God. Therefore, in his anger, he sent the Babylonians against them to defile the temple and carry away its treasures. Congregation, the defeat of Jerusalem and the defilement of the temple teaches us that God's long-suffering has limits. When his people fail to appreciate their unique privileges and fail to appreciate the favor, love, and grace of God, the time comes when he says, enough. That was not only true for the church of the Old Testament, but also for the church of the New Testament. In the New Testament, God dwells in the church in the person of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament church is called the temple of God, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. When a church fails to appreciate her special status, when a church does not value the grace of God and no longer treasures the message of the gospel, when a church does not manifest the fruits of thankfulness, the Lord removes the Spirit from them. The risen Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will remove your lampstand. That is, I will disqualify you as a church of Christ. You will cease to be a manifestation of the body of Christ on earth. Ichabod will be engraved on your door. The glory has departed. Brothers and sisters, if God poured out his judgment upon Judah because of their unbelief, don't think that you will be spared if you fail to cherish your special status and fail to manifest the fruits of faith and thankfulness before God. Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand. Numerous churches in our nation today are dead. Dead. The organization, the structure, the programs may be there. But the church is spiritually dead. The spirit has departed and true life is gone. 
They have lost the right to the name Church of Jesus Christ. They have become nothing more than social gatherings. Let's take it to heart, congregation. If we do not take heed to what the Spirit says to the churches, if we do not love the gospel, if we do not worship our God in spirit and truth, if we do not delight in the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, if we come to the assembly each week merely out of custom, without a heart of love for God, if we become bored hearing His word and His promises, then the time will come when God says, enough. He will remove the lampstand, disqualify us as a church, and we will cease to be a manifestation of the body of Christ on earth. Then, brothers and sisters, I ask you, is your heart warm to the things of God? Is the message of redemption precious to you? Does God look upon you and see the fruits of faith and thankfulness? Is He pleased with your worship? We can go through all the correct steps of Reformed liturgy. But if our heart is far from the Lord, then our religious exercises are all in vain. The Lord knows the heart and nothing is hidden from His sight. Well, we come then thirdly, from the defeat of Jerusalem and the defilement of the temple to the deportation of Judah's choice men. The deportation of Judah's choice men. Look with me to verse 14. Also, Nebuchadnezzar carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Verse 15, and he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 16, all the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war, these the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. To prevent any further rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar took away the prominent men of Judah. He removed the leaders, military experts, masons, blacksmiths, and anyone who might be instrumental in leading a revolt. He left behind the poorest people of the land, Without blacksmiths, they could make no weapons. And without leadership, they would have no means to organize a revolt. Nebuchadnezzar effectively disarmed the city. Judah was stripped of its leading citizens. Those who were left were no threat to the king. They had no weapons, no leadership, no organization. Imagine if someone went into a large company like General Motors and and removed the president, vice president, draftsmen, computer technicians, engineers, and left only the men on the line. Without the leading men, production would quickly grind to a halt and the company would collapse. There has to be leadership and skilled, coordinated effort. There has to be a diversity of skills in order to produce a quality, well-designed product. It doesn't require an expert to tell you that General Motors would collapse if you removed everyone except the men on the line. 
That's what Nebuchadnezzar effectively did to Judah. He crippled the nation by entirely deporting their choice men to Babylon and then appointing a puppet king to rule in Jerusalem. The congregation again, we need to see that this deportation was not merely the work of Nebuchadnezzar and his army. It was the work of God in fulfillment of his covenant word. It was God who drove them from their land. It was God who brought them into Babylon. It was God who deported Judah's choice men. This was God's work. The faithful remnant in Judah understood this. They knew the prophetic word. Therefore, as they were led to Babylon, they wept. They wept not only because they lost their homes, property, and way of life, but they wept because of the anger of God. Among those who were brought to Babylon at this time was a godly man named Ezekiel. He was 25 years old in the prime of his life, preparing to serve as a priest in the temple of God. But his plans were drastically altered and his whole life and suddenly entirely changed as he was led by Nebuchadnezzar to a foreign land. We gain insight into how Ezekiel and the faithful remnant felt when we read what psalm? Psalm 137. Listen as I read to you just a few verses. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The godly of Judah. People like Ezekiel, Daniel, his three friends, and others wept over the state of the church and the discipline of the Lord. And yet, brothers and sisters, we know that in the midst of this tragedy, God had not forgotten his promise of the Messiah. Even in the darkness of Babylon, God's light would continue to shine in a pagan land While Judah was under a curse, God would reveal his grace. It was while he was in Babylon that Daniel prophesied of the coming kingdom of Christ. In a vision, he saw a stone cut out without hands that grew into a mountain which filled the whole earth. He saw the messianic kingdom. All the kingdoms of the world will be destroyed, but the kingdom of Christ will endure forever. Likewise, the prophet Ezekiel, it was while he was in Babylon that he received the promise of God that through the greater David, Jesus Christ, God's people would receive tremendous blessings. It was while Ezekiel was in Babylon that he received promises of future glory through Jesus Christ. Therefore, congregation, in the midst of darkness and sorrow, there's still hope for the righteous. God had not broken his promises. Jesus Christ was coming to save his people and of his kingdom there is no end. 
Brothers and sisters, today, today you and I know that these promises are fulfilled. Jesus has come. He has shed his blood for sinners and saved his children from the bondage of sin. Ultimately, Babylon is not triumphant, for Christ is the victor. And so as we close, I want to remind you of your need of him. You are a sinner, but Jesus is righteous. You're unholy, but Jesus is holy. You're a covenant breaker, unable to please God, but Jesus was God's beloved son in whom he is well pleased. We and our children are truly rich when he is our righteousness, our hope, and our salvation. Then, brothers and sisters, live under the shadow of the Almighty. Say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Thank the Lord for His full and free salvation. Let us pray. Lord, what a blessing to know that you are faithful. That even though your church throughout history has been unfaithful again and again and again, you have made a promise, and those promises will not be broken. And our Lord Jesus came to redeem sinners, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Lord, may it be that we rest our hope in him. We recognize that we too, Lord, can be those who just simply go through the motions. Gathering for worship when our heart is elsewhere. We pray, O oh Lord, by the work of your spirit, that would not be so here at Bethel. Because we know that if we merely come and worship with our lips while our heart is far from you, Lord, the day will come when you say enough. And we will lose the right to be called church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will remove the lampstand. Oh, we pray, Lord, that that would not be so here, that this church would continue to worship you in spirit and in truth until our Savior returns. So work in us, work in our children. Grant us great pleasure in the gospel. Fill us with the joy of worship, the joy of sins forgiven, and life everlasting. And so, Lord, would you continue to watch over your people here. Lord, as we move into another work week, that you will help us to live out the Christian life, that we wouldn't just come here and, uh, and say certain things and act a certain way on the Lord's Day, but that everything we learn here, everything that we are reminded of would flow into our week. 
that we would be true to you, that you'll help us to live the Christian life faithfully. People would see that we belong to Christ. Receive our praises as we conclude this service. In the name of Christ, the faithful one, we pray, amen.